This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. I, I think it's going. I, I can see people in the chat. Have have some chatty stuff. So this time again, you're going to watch the chat and let us know if there's anything that we need to comment on, right? Oh man, okay. And because I'm watching the chat, I guess everybody else in order to oh. be able to see it, they have to they have to see. You, you uh, just had the same thing happen. Did you get an ad? An ad, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I I paused the ad. I just want to see the chat. I don't want to see me, you know, in the thing too. Yeah, there we go. Okay. So just so it's probably gonna take another minute or two until some people start to show up. But the but I I put a thing here uh, about rhubarb in the chat thing and it says uh will you give the rhubarb one or two years before you start taking a crop? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so uh the stuff so we've got like I don't know, eight rhubarb plants growing right now, and so we had two of them that have been here for probably three years and uh, last year both of them were just giant giant rhubarb plants and so uh, we went to those two there were several others that were doing pretty good but they weren't as you know giant as these giant ones and and so we went and we took about uh, half of the comb from each of those uh, okay, says have have video, have sound. Oh, I thank you for giving us video and sound. But um, uh, we had some people that were asking earlier, like I can't, I can't hear anything, and it was like <laughs> we haven't started yet. <laughs> so we said 10 a.m. Mountain Time, and uh, and so we send out a couple of announcements to the appropriate people, uh, like about 10 minutes before it started, saying it's at the top of the hour. So, uh, yeah, I, I can understand that, that they're going to be frustrated. Now, today we're going to talk about Wafati stuff. <clears throat> uh, it was a few days ago. We read Chapter 30 of the Building a Better World book, uh, which, you know, maybe – now I'm beginning to think the title's long after having said it so many. Uh, building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Hmm, that's a long title. Um, so uh, maybe we could have come up with a single word for our book, but no way, man. This is descriptive. This says what it is. Yeah, we could have just called it better. Better. Yeah, that's not bad, actually. Better. Um, um, <clears throat> better. No, now my mind wants to go and think of, like, one-word titles. And, and uh, oh, i got to stop that, stop that, stop that. All right, but we're going to talk. Basically, I ran out of fuel, um, and and uh, I don't know how long was that podcast? What was it? It was a couple yeah, hours. Yeah, hours. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so we said, okay, because I made a long list of stuff that were lessons learned from building the Wafatis that we have now, yeah. and uh, things that we do differently and stuff. And then uh, this morning, um, uh, I was out processing one of the podcasts, and I found. 
a, a post by Mark Tudor who asked a bunch of questions about Wafati. And so it's like, oh. So I copied and pasted that into the bottom of our show notes. Um, but people could uh, uh, post stuff into the, the chat thing. And um, uh, it sounds like um, on the last time, even though there was a lot, that uh, Sean stayed on top of it. He he read all of the all of the posts, or almost all. It sounds like maybe almost there all. maybe there are a few that that snuck through. But um, uh, as we get into this, feel free to, to type in questions, and then Sean will uh, read through them and, and give us the feedback. So yeah, I was just kind of mentioning how yesterday we divided uh, rhubarb plants, um, and apparently I'm the only person here who has done that before. So I. I showed everybody how it was done, and and I I said, oh, you're going to be so embarrassed because it's so simple uh, on what you do. It's like I could I could give you seven seconds of instruction, and then you could just go out and do it, and it'll all be fine. Um, but we so we 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 took pieces of, and it's the the key is is that uh, in a rhubarb plant, there's the comb, so there's the the uh, stalks and the and the leaves on the top. And then underneath that, you're going to find roots all over the place. And then there's this weird glob right here. It's kind of a yellowish glob when you cut into it. And that's called the comb. And so uh, what I try to do is to cut away just less than half of the comb. So about half, but a little less than half. And just cut that. So I sharpened my shovel ahead of time, made sure my shovel was very sharp, and then uh, cut away that. And then once it's out, then you can break it up into like uh, uh, six to maybe uh, a dozen pieces. And so I intended to do six, but we ended up with like a dozen. Um, and then it kind of had the idea of like, well, what if you just plant a root piece? What happens? So we had some extra root pieces that, that came from this, and it's like, I don't know, let's plant it in our house, see what okay. it does. So, um, and uh, last year, we saw a bunch of baby rhubarbs just popping up, like about six feet away from another rhubarb plant. And, uh, and so clearly it must have shot out some seeds, and then those seeds uh, did something. And um, uh, I'm, but I thought that they'd all died, but apparently they had not. So there's, so Fred thinks there's one that survived. All right. We have every, so we got a lot of people. Everything seems to be getting settled up. Yep. Um, give me just a second. All right. Do, 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 do. I am going over to the show notes. Oh, first item on the list. Do we need a future podcast about the difference between forestry management and woodland management? It seems like that came up somewhere. And we put this in the show notes to ask this question. So this would be a thing that um, uh, people in the um, chat might want to comment about. Uh, and maybe we need a more thorough exploration between both. So that could be a whole a whole podcast topic. Um, yeah. I know that part of the uh, um, reading the chapter was about forestry practice and how basically you could take this wood – that you know, um, uh, you, you, the more it's, it's kind of like the more that you, you take it away, the more will grow. 
So if you take a bunch of logs and you create a wafati, that effectively sequesters that carbon for, you know, 50 to 100 years. Yeah. Um, and so the idea was is that uh, – but <clears> – <throat> There's forestry practices, and then there's the, the including the things that the people have been doing for the last 50 years, as well as what they've been doing in the last five years. There's been dramatic improvements, but I think that there's still a lot of improvements. I mean, just um, in the last couple of weeks, I've been seeing people burning uh, wood uh, for the sake of fuel reduction. And, um, and I think, you know, man, I want to convince those people of something else. But the question is, is that, uh, should we make a future podcast about the difference between forestry management and woodland management? And I don't think I'm seeing discussion about that. So apparently it's, that's a flop. We should let it go. Uh, quick mention for the Patreon peeps. Uh, they get a mountain of goodies. When you sign up for my Patreon thing for even like a, a buck, um, you get oodles of stuff. Um, and I want to just do a quick shout out, uh, to, uh, six of the Patreon supporters. Bill Krim, somebody who goes by anonymous, <laughs> uh, Wade Luger, uh, Carrie, just too lazy. Um, and so I think that last name might be a pseudonym. Uh, Jocelyn Campbell at jocelyncampbell.com. Uh, Eric Tolbert. So there you go, six six people from our Patreon peeps. Thanks so much for supporting the Patreon. It makes so much stuff possible. Um, and the uh, the Patreon accounts are patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton for the podcast and patreon.com slash pwvids for the videos. Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, and then we've got a, a piece of the Kickstarter FAQ. So, Sean, I think this is your domain. You can read this one? Yeah, I got it. So uh, we got a question from someone recently who said, will the book be on Amazon? And the answer is maybe slash probably. I, I'm planning to put it up. I don't know when it'll happen. The key is it'll cost more and it won't come with a pile of goodies. And waiting doesn't really help bring all of this awesomeness into the greater mindshare in the same way that supporting the Kickstarter does. So what I told the person was, yeah, it might be. But it would be more awesome to me if you would support now, and it would be more awesome for you if you would support now. Yeah, I, there's so much stuff to figure out, and um, the uh, the Kickstarter has slowed way down. Um, I I didn't think it would slow down this this much, considering how fast it went at the beginning. I mean, yeah, um, it's like we had days that were like. Twelve thousand dollars a day, and now we're seeing like two hundred dollars a day. And I was like, "Wow, that is that is a lot slower." Although it's um, interesting, we're recording this at ten o'clock Paul time, and we already have more money in today than we did the whole day yesterday. So, wow, a good thing for today. I I look forward to figuring out why. Um, figuring out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the reporting on Kickstarter isn't, you know, super amazing. Um, but, uh, uh, all right. Um, lots and lots and lots to cover. In the, so, uh, for, for Kickstarter, I mean, we've, we hit a new stretch goal, which is great. Yeah. 
the, the we're now uh, past fifty-five thousand dollars, and and then we thought, oh, well, we'll announce, we'll, we'll we've got a few stretch goals in mind. We'll announce another one, and then we kind of had this new idea, and in order to fill out the new idea, we're going to announce all of that tomorrow, and I think the new idea is going to be pretty exciting. <clears throat> okay. Um, oh, yeah, here's this, here's this statement that I wrote. And, um, uh, for the podcast, or, you know, to, to say, I thought I was going to like write this one little sentence to kind of like quick mention, uh, for this podcast, but then I, I ended up writing this, uh, thing. So let me just read the whole thing. I am not sure what you all are doing in your day to day lives to push permaculture forward or to change the world to be a more permaculture world. But maybe supporting this Kickstarter can be a bit of buying a bit of forward velocity. If half the people listening to this podcast supported the Kickstarter at the one, the best topic, not only will they explore this topic more, but they will write about this. If we get that level of support, then we will have blasted through a huge pile of stretch goals and your $100. And for your $100, you would get a pile of our new books plus a library full of other books and DVDs. And together, we will have infected millions of brains with permaculture ideas. In the last podcast, we listed off 10 stretch goals that are coming, including the audiobook. Here are a few more that are on the list for possible stretch goals if we get past those stretch goals. Uh, waving the Gapper fee at Wheaton Labs. The Permaculture Voices 1 video. We just yesterday got the green light to, to make that a stretch goal. Uh, rough drafts of four books that I have at least half done. Um uh, and I've already talked to Sean about possibly fleshing those out someday, but right now they're, they've got, there's a lot of meat to those books, those four books. <clears throat> uh, five of the microdocs from previous Kickstarters that are not part of this Kickstarter in any way yet. Uh, Sergey Botenko's Wild Edibles book, Mike Ayler's $50 and up underground house book, Josiah Wallingford's plant propagation course, Amanda Smith's Eat Your Dirt Summit videos. Adam Klaus's book, Dairy Farming, The Beautiful Way. And we just got the green light on that one yesterday also. Yeah. The Chimerical Movie. And we got the green light on that one yesterday. Yeah. Uh, thanks to Sean. That's Sean's big achievement. <laughs> uh, and no, thanks, thanks to the Chimerical people. Oh. <laughs> and the movie's awesome. We've got a podcast about it. Uh, emergency home power video from Stephen Harris. And lots, lots more where we're still having conversations with people, like probably a dozen more things on top of that. But that would be like, that would be an enormous list of stretch goals. So if half the people listening right now supported the Kickstarter to $100, each person would receive about $2,000 worth of content. And we would all collectively be showing that permaculture is the best topic for authors considering Kickstarter. Plus, 
who knows what other magnificent change it could trigger just because of the size of it all. Could we get the attention of big-time media? Apparently, there are about 20,000 non-profit environmental organizations, and that number comes from a TED Talk I saw years ago where I believe, if memory serves, that's what they said, and I kind of got like, no way, 20,000. And while they were presenting, they listed them. Just this ongoing massive list in the background while they were talking of all of these nonprofit organizations just simply dedicated to the environment. I think it is possible that if half the people listening to this podcast put in $100, this Kickstarter could do more for the environment, possibly, than the effort of those 20,000 organizations combined. Now, there's heavy emphasis on the word possible, provided that people read the book and implement a good portion of what is suggested. So this is our moment. This is our chance. Let's go for it. All right. I know that that's a big, big, big leap. And, and it's like, I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but I do think that it's like the stuff that I see people doing seems so incredibly weak. And the things that are lauded as the best thing you could possibly do also seem either incredibly weak or actually the opposite of something that will be helpful. So I kind of feel like this has the potential of making some very, very, very big change. Um, that's what people want. That, and it's like... Um, it's, I kind of feel like, you know, if if we did, if, if enough people did half of the stuff that's listed in the book, suddenly this, this, this debate, this massive debate would just be over. It's like, well, it's not an issue anymore. Took care of it. <laughs> so um, uh, that might bring some families together <laughs> that are currently a little divided. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things we put here in the show notes is that uh, uh, there have been a lot of book reviews lately. So people who got an early copy of the book. By the way, is there anything that's going on in the chat stuff that we should talk about, Sean? Uh, there's a cool idea, but let's uh, let's save that for uh, when we're doing uh, when we get to the the meat of the Q and A here. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so there have been a bunch of people who got a, a, a review of the transcript. And um, those people uh, have been writing reviews of the book out at Permies uh, before the book's even published. Uh, and uh, so uh, Sean thought it would be fun to put some of those in here. Although I just want to say that um, there was one review that was like, it's all the reviews, it's so exciting. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. And then one of them was seven out of ten. It's like, what? And it's like, oh, two points off because it's in a cold climate. Because a lot of the book talks about heat, saving energy with heat. And then uh, one point off because the layout was so awful. And it's like, yeah, uh-huh. it, it hasn't been the layout yet. <laughs> I, I, I put that thing together in half an hour. <laughs> so, I'm, uh, Frankly, I'm, I'm proud that it looks as good as it does. Yeah, I mean, it's just a transcript right now. There's, we don't have all of the images perfect inside of it, but it, even the transcript, we have a lot of the images in there. Uh, 
but it's like it's just a transcript. But all right, so I'm going to turn this over to Sean um, for for reading the, uh, the the some some review fragments. Yeah, so there's like something like ten reviews up right now, I think. Um, but I'm going to read uh, some fragments of the first three. So if you want to see the rest of them, you'll have to go out for me and take a look at that. Um, so Dave Burton says, and Dave, Dave is the one who really got us going on these reviews things. So we should we should say that. Thanks, Dave, for all your initiative there. Uh, Dave says, I like the book because it is well well organized, well thought out, has wonderful illustrations, and tons of links to discussions at Fermis.com, where I can learn more and ask questions about topics that come up in the book. 10 out of 10. Miles Flansberg, Flansberg sorry, says, Paul and Co-Crazy, Sean Klaus and Coop. Apparently I'm Co-Crazy now. <laughs> no. I uh, have pulled together all of the answers I've searched for my whole life. Grow better, healthier food? It's in there. Save energy? Check. Cut living costs? Yep. And all the while, I can live in luxury, even build my own natural swimming pool. This book will become one of the primers for folks who want to help themselves and help Mother Nature at the same time. 10 out of 10. Rosemary Hansen says, Overall, this book is simply a brilliant way of looking at the problems that our world faces in 2019. Although some may not want to try the more extreme ideas out, it can get readers thinking about ways they can dig deeper, help combat climate change and widespread pollution. It goes far beyond simply recycling and places the responsibility on our everyday actions and choices. Ten out of ten. So that's like a tiny piece of it. Uh, yeah, there's lots more great stuff there, and and hopefully we'll do a couple more podcasts and share a few more. Right. I, I do kind of think that some people are probably looking at the Kickstarter and be like, I don't know if I want to support it. I mean, I haven't heard whether or not the book's any good or not. Or I don't, I don't want to support, I want to, or I won't, I don't want to buy 30 copies of a book I haven't even read one copy of yet. And, and yeah. so, <clears throat> it, which, you know, understandable. So maybe some people will find this a little helpful to make this leap. And um, and it'll it'll help to get more support for the Kickstarter. Right. Uh, so, uh, all right. Now we're going to go into the Wafati stuff. Here's here's our notes and things. Now, did did you say you had something to? Yeah. So we were talking last last time. We were talking about um, building with natural materials and how the Wafati does still use that that thin membrane, right? Two of them. Um, and how we like the idea that someday it might be possible that we don't even need that, that we can figure out some sort of natural way to make an Uh So D. Logan was saying here that he was thinking some kind of double layer with bentonite might be possible, um, which I think is theoretically possible. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to see how it would work. I think it would be like, and he was saying here, I was like, well, I would like to see an experiment to see how it's done, but I wouldn't want to do it on a whole body that is house size. And, and he said that. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, like, I'd love to do a small test. He says, like, maybe, like, a little play area kind of thing, something that's quick and easy and, like, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I love the idea of doing that. I don't think bentonite clay would be the kind. I, I think you would want to get more of a potter's clay. Um, 
Because mm-hmm. <clears throat> bentonite clay is going to expand and contract based on how much water it has. And so some of the year is going to be dry and some of the, some of the year is going to be really wet. Right. Um, so his idea, I'm just reciting what he said here. His idea was to say, okay, you have your two layers mm-hmm. and then your top one is going to get wet and dry. And so it is going to crack. And this is as one membrane layer, not as the two separate membranes. So as rather than the one thin sheet of membrane, you would have two layers. And then the top one would get wet and dry, and that one would crack, like you're saying. And so water would get in. And then his theory was that the water would actually then get stuck between those two layers and create a perpetual wet in between those two layers. And so the bottom layer would not so I would like to suggest first of all um, when we explore dirt having it's a magical thing that happens with the Wafati design is that um, you have with dry dirt you have not only insulation but you have incredible mass and so it's doing the thermal inertia thing but it's also doing insulation Um, so it's kind of got it has superpowers, if you will. But once you add water to it, once that once that gets wet or even moist, sure. the, the insulative factor of it drops by a factor of five, I believe. And so um, it would be preferable to keep it dry. The next thing is, is it's like, rather than saying it cracks and expands and cracks, I, I'm kind of thinking like, what if that particular layer Instead of it being uh, uh, the bentonite-like clay to have more of a potter's clay, and then it has some 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 sand mixed into it, um, and then that way, because uh, the sand mitigates the cracking, and so then right. you end up with something that's relatively watertight. Now I kind of wonder too about the, the possibility of other materials uh, uh, being used in there that that might help with uh, maintaining the integrity and then also helping to, to shed water because there's also some interesting properties that happen when um, <clears throat> you you take some of this material and you encase it in clay or uh, sand and clay yeah. and and then since it's not exposed to oxygen then it, it tends to um, basically form uh, if it's like a, a a high nitrogen organic matter is going to glee. One way is to glee. Another way is to basically mummify. Yeah. So there's a, a couple of different possible things. But backing away from all of those ideas, which I've had so many conversations with so many different people about, and it's all very speculative. But you know, back, yeah. it's like we've got some experiments that we're trying to get kicked off now, and we haven't gotten through those yet. I kind of feel like. We need to get these experiments done so we can build on that knowledge. And I mean, a big, a big thing that I'm trying to do is it's like, um, and it, we can argue about how I've been a dumb fuck for so long doing it all the the wrong way. But a couple of things is is that okay, I want to do permaculture. I'm, I'm bonkers about gardening, and it's like, but I have forgone a lot of that. Because I'm trying to instead garden gardeners. And, it, and it's kind of like, okay, so I want to have like uh, 20 gardeners up on the lab and maybe um, eight 
here at base camp. Yeah. And it's like, well, since permaculture is a perennial uh, technique, then um, it's not like I can say, well, winter came. You guys, you know, you don't want to stay in your tents now, do you? Get the fuck out. And it's like, so instead of that, is we, like, okay, we need gardener habitat. We need perennial gardener habitat. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, I have been focusing on the, on the community stuff, on building the infrastructure and, and things of that nature. And, um, uh, what I, what I would really like to be able to have is to have 20 people right now that are living full time up on the lab. And then we could build a lot of stuff. Cause the other thing is, is like money comes in. Somebody says, Hey, I'll, I'll put up. 10 grand if you build this thing and see if it works. And it's like, oh, that's cool. So then we got the money and it's kind of like, who do we give this to? And, uh, you know, so the boot camp is not yet full. Uh, I mean, six spots. And, and, it, and the boot camp is not currently full. So it would be great to be able to, to get some people in here for that. People that are, there's people out there that are considering woof. And I kind of feel like, oh, what we have to offer is 10 times better than woof. And, and it's like, uh, um, so we've, we've got that. Uh, uh, the next thing is, is like the pep one event coming up. Cause there's so much that's going to happen there. And then it's like, we've got a sweet, sweet deal right now for people to come to Ant Village and build something that they could build this. They could, they could do it. I mean, it, Deep Roots, we've got all these programs to try and get all these things going, and it's just like a whole lot of work to get it all pulled off. So, yeah, we've got lots. I, I kind of feel like this year, um, I, feel, I feel like we're just, we've got two spots available in the boot camp program, and I kind of feel like I'd love the idea of getting those last two spots filled, and I'd love to see like 200 people on a waiting list to come into the boot camp program. And um, then we could get a much stronger forward velocity on a lot of the stuff. And then as people are, like, craving this and they're kind of saying, like, boy, I really wish that they would hurry up and, and and do that project and this project and this other project and 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 fill up their community and come up with that perfect recipe for a community and all that stuff. And it's like, I'm trying, and, and I could use a little help here. Um, and, and, uh, a lot of people want me to try to, to go down, um, uh, that, that path that has the, uh, um, oh, the grants. Oh, go and get, go and get grants. I was like, uh, it's, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I, what I'm, what I am going to do is I'm going to do Kickstarters and I'm going to, and we've got that reverse biological Kickstarter thing, which is kind of like more like a bounty. So somebody, so we've had a bunch of people that put in and say like, uh, if a boot posts a picture day for 90 days, They'll put a thing in there, like they'll put a dollar or five dollars or what, or somebody put in like I'll knit you a hat, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and it's kind of like uh, that. That helps. That helps to fill the boot camp program, and it helps to get pictures up on on Permies so you can see uh, all the stuff that's going on. Which I think a lot of people, that's what they really want, is they don't just want it to exist; they want to see it exist they want to see it happen and so it's kind of like that 
that reverse biological Kickstarter thing, I think, is going to be a huge fuel to make everything work. But we just need folks to pop over there and put a couple of bucks up um, and and see it uh, see it come together. Okay. Uh, I think that there's a lot of fun ideas to consider and try out and see what kind of works. And um, and somebody's got to do it. And uh, maybe I'm I'm doing what I can to try and bring people in. And um, I'm not sure what else to do to try and and get these things to happen. Um, If uh, somebody knows of somebody who's a, a timber framer who would like to come out and earn some money, we can do that. Uh, if uh, if folks can uh, put something behind the reverse biological Kickstarter, that's good. Putting funds into this Kickstarter is great. I think I think if this Kickstarter gets to about a hundred, you know, my rough math says if the Kickstarter gets to about one hundred and fifty thousand, I'll finally get enough money to be able to put in a well. Um, and I'd have to go run oodles of spreadsheets again to to see uh, if I'm even close on that guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, when the kick when the Kickstarter does super 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 great, that super amplifies what we're doing here at Wheaton Labs. Yeah, and it also kind of makes it more worthwhile uh, for for people like Sean to want to be involved with me and and make more Kickstarters. <laughs> Sean's probably looking for the door about now, folks. <laughs> Go support our Kickstarter. So Sean wants to do more bucks. All right. Uh, anything else popping up in the chat stuff? Uh, nothing I want to bring up right now. Nope. Okay. All right. <sighs> Updates and lessons learned. Allerton Abbey. Um, oh, they, they uh, had the dirt on top all wrong. And so, um, I, you know, I'm not sure. I want to lay blame and fault, and I think it's on me. And, um, and I think a lot of it was that I would explain it several times at base camp on how it needs to be done. And when I went up, I, I didn't think to, to check on this, but, um, uh, so speaking of lessons learned, then, um, I, uh, I remember, I have a vague memory of asking about like, when you're standing at the front and you're looking up, you shouldn't be able to see any of the dirt because it's all going to be like going downhill from the front. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, and it was, ex- I believe my vague memory says it was explaining like, no, there's a, there's a hump in the middle and that's okay. All the water still runs away from the edges. And I should have walked up there and looked and I didn't take the time. And, um, now I've got a lot of time put into it because it was uh, last fall, me and Fred and about six other people uh, basically uh, took took it all off. We took off all of the dirt, all of it, and um, uh, and then um, those six other people eventually had to go on with their lives and it just left Fred and I so for like I don't and so you know this Sean because it was like I don't know what was it a week and a half yeah it was like oh where'd Paul go oh he's he's driving the excavator and it's like 
I can't work on the book right now because we got to get this dirt back on Allerton Abbey. And, um, and I was the, the excavator driver. And so, um, and, and it just, it had to be done before the snow came in and froze everything up. Um, so, uh, um, I, I went up there and did that. But, um, basically, it's, it's like you can shape it any way that you want up there. And the key is, is to shape it so that the water runs away from the edges and then runs down the hill. Um, and it runs, it seems like it's not that challenging of a thing. And so, um, man, we pulled a lot of dirt off the top. So at one part, it was nine feet thick. And so it should never be a total of more than three feet thick. So if nothing else, we dramatically proved that the uh, timber framing underneath was super strong. <laughs> and it's like, and then once we take off that, that extra six feet of dirt, then I think that resolves all questions about snow load. Um, this kind of reminds <laughs> yeah. me. This kind of reminds me of um, uh, a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip from 25 years ago or something. And Calvin asks his dad, he says, you know, how do they know how big of a truck can go across a bridge? Because there's a sign that says, you know, maximum capacity of so many tons. And, he's, and the dad says, well, they build the bridge and then they drive trucks across it that are heavier and heavier and heavier until the bridge collapses and then they know the number and then they rebuild the bridge. <laughs> so we didn't do that, but in a way we kind of did. <laughs> we know that this thing can handle any snow load, <laughs> whatever, whatever. Cause we've, I have never seen, it was back in like 1988 that I, uh, I saw the snow here in Missoula be three feet deep. That's the deepest I've ever seen in this area. Uh, which of course, that's yeah, cute. That's yeah, Canadian. Cute. Yeah. You know, and it, well, we're in a, we're in a drier yeah. area, you know, and so, uh, you're over there, uh, uh, staring at the Great Lakes, which is sloppy wet there's, area. Yeah. There's still a bit of snow outside. You go oh yeah. yeah. There is. Yeah. It's April 24th for people who listen to this in the future. I, I think, uh, around here at my place, you'd be hard pressed to find snow right now. I mean, yeah. go way up in the mountains or something, but yeah, around the lab and base camp, I think that would have to be a, a north facing slope with super shade to still have some snow. Yeah, almost gone. Another week or two. Cause we've got everything growing now. In fact, I talked about rhubarb earlier and I kind of feel like I want to, want to express that the time to divide rhubarb is when the leaves get to dinner plate size. And that's about the right time. That's so, you know, when the rhubarb first pops up, the leaves are like kind of this yellowy color. And then so you, get, you need to give them a little time to get their green going on. Good, nice, dark green. And the leaves get to a certain size. Then you can start dividing it up. Right. Okay. Um, so they had a big hump on the top. So the water would land on the hump and it would go to the edge. And that is not okay. That's not the way to do it. Um, now, you do want to set it up so that, uh, for example, for the eaves on the edge, 
that the the amount of dirt there is only like maybe uh, three to eight inches thick. It's pretty, not very thick uh, at the edge. And then um, there might be a slope like this for the shed roof, and then there's a slope like this for the dirt on top of that. So um, uh, sloped, so the water runs away, but uh, uh, such that the, the soil gets thicker and thicker and thicker as you go further downhill until you reach a maximum thickness of three feet. So by the time that the, the you know, so the maximum thickness anywhere on the structure should be three feet. Now, of course, off of the structure, the maximum thickness is hundreds of feet. <laughs> no big deal. Who cares? It goes down forever. Um, all right. So uh, a bunch of people were here and helped to get it sorted. They all had to leave to get on with their lives. Fred and I finished up. Uh, most of the umbrella is currently on. So by the time things started freezing hard, we had the umbrella put on over the structure. So it's got the layer that, that is right next to the structure. That's in place. Um, and then there's another layer that defines the umbrella over the structure that's several inches to several feet uh, over the initial structure. And that's, that is in place over the structure, but it doesn't have the full extended umbrella yet. That's coming in the next couple of weeks. Um, uh, in fact, uh, Fred might be working on that today. Okay. Um, so let's see, uh, a little bit of umbrella left to do this year. Okay, the uphill, well, first of all, are there any questions about umbrella stuff left? I mean, you know, from you're watching the the chat stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would consider this an umbrella wall question. There was a question about uh, how did how is radon handled, or does it need to be handled? I would say that radon is going to be an issue for a basement, but when you have an above ground structure, if you have radon, because that's but really, the thing to do is you got to get a radon tester and find out. And um, I'd have to say that if you can build a Wafati there, chances are that you don't have a radon problem because radon is radon is most common in uh, granite stuff. So, like, if you have a lot of granite in your area, you're you're going to have a more likely you have radon issues to explore. Um, but then if, if you've got, uh, if you're, if you're above ground, like let's say you're even two feet above ground and, uh, you're, you, you set up your house in such a way that it's not sealed perfectly tight, the radon, which pools on the floor, will drain out. And so you've got to create ways for it to possibly drain out if you have a radon issue. Right. So I, I would say that step one is going to be to measure to see if you have a radon issue that needs to be uh, sorted out. And um, I would have to say that most of the time, um, basements, basement, basements are going to be a place where radon just pools yeah. and builds up and becomes, you can get just insane levels of radon. Um, but uh, I would say that even if you... Uh, walk out your front door once in a while and you're not in a basement, that's going to let a lot of the radon out. Yeah. 
So well, isn't it like crazy expensive stuff you have to do if you find you have a basement that's ready on there? I seem to recall someone talking about it. I would, I would think that, um, that yeah, you would probably want to come up with some sort of um, pump that basically pumps air. But I mean, you'd have to, it would have to be a strong draw to move the radon up through a pipe to outside. Yeah, some kind of, anyways. All right. I, I agree with you, by the way. Yeah, I think, I think so long as it's an above ground structure. Yeah, once you're an above ground structure, most of your radon stuff is mitigated. And yeah. so, but I still think it's, if you've got granite based mountains nearby or a granite based subsoil, then um, test. Yeah, check it out. Don't. And and also you got to keep in mind that those testers they take forty eight hours to to do a test, uh, maybe even longer. You got to let them run a long time, and uh, and yeah, go from there. Okay. Um, keep your eye out for any more stuff from the chat that we might want to talk about. Yeah. I can see you know I can see it scrolling by. Um, Oh, is anyone doing a Wafati presentation at Port Townsend? And then it's like, uh, uh, certain dates. And so, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that, uh, not that I know of. All right. The uphill wall. Oh, this is, this is an important thing. Um, the first wall was a quickie stick frame conventional wall with some insulation, just standard, you know, insulation. And uh, uh, it was designed to be temporary because basically uh, we got the, the main frame of it built and we got the, the dirt on the top or most of the dirt on the top. And it just got thrown together. The whole Wafati got thrown together pretty quickly in just a few weeks with the idea that there was going to be a family staying in it over the winter. So they put walls up on the uphill and down the hillside and it was good enough to get by. Um, and then uh, it was uh, replaced. I believe it was the following year with a poorly done. This is this is the uphill wall, the poorly done straw bale wall. Now I believe it was that same year, or maybe it was the next year. I think it was the, the yeah, it was the next. It was actually uh, uh, the next year that it was replaced with the poorly. So it was two years later. It was replaced with the poorly done straw bale wall. And on the downhill side, it was replaced, the, the downhill wall was replaced with a really nice straw bale wall that's still there. And it looks good. Um, it's got a good door, good window. Everything's good. But on the uphill side, it was like, hmm, that was, that was not good. Um, there, basically, uh, there was a guy that said that he would replace the walls. And, um, so at some point, so he, so he agreed to do the job, and he got started, and then he said, I don't – I guess I, I don't have the skills I thought I had. This, I'll pay to have Ernie and Erica come in for a week and personally tutor you in uh, uh, building these walls. Wow. And, and, and so I paid for all of that. And uh, Ernie and Erica came and taught him and 
and uh, and I think he had like a, an assistant at the time, so Ernie and Eric had trained the assistant too, and and uh, uh, showed him all the things, and basically helped him build the uh, the downhill wall the right way, and um, and then after that was all gone, then then he said, uh, yeah, I'm I'm going to not build the uphill wall. Yeah. And so it's it's like ah, oh. uh, and and to make it the the thing that really made it sting is that it's like there were other people that wanted to take on this project, and he like says no no I got dibs dibs dibs, and then it was one of those things where it's like he's going to show up on a certain day to get started, and that got postponed and postponed and postponed for whatever reason, and and so and and then he so. But it's kind of like these kinds of things seem to be more the norm. Uh, but the bottom line is, is that because of all the reasons, the downhill wall, uh, which is one third the size of the uphill wall, was done really well, and so it's all done great. Um, and then uh, the the guy we hired uh, to do the uphill wall, um, he took a lot of shortcuts, and he was and it was new to him and. Um, I and there was like at the same time we had events going on, so it was a mess. And then he had to go, and what he left, and he's like, "I'll be, I'll be back." And then he didn't come back, and and um, so it's like we finally got to the point where it's like, okay, that has to, that has to come down. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and at one point in time, we talked about the idea of uh, a few different ideas for the uphill wall. Um. One of them was the idea of, uh, I mean, of course, what we ended up doing was straw bale, uh, right. with, with a, a beautiful cob, uh, right. and, and, uh, plasters layer. Right. Uh, but we had two other ideas that were in the running. Um, both of them, I, I just really love both of these ideas and I kind of feel like, let's build more Wafatis just to be able to try out all these ideas. Yeah. But um, one of the ideas was because you got this five-foot eave on the uphill side, uh, and that's to keep water away from the logs that are holding up the five-foot eave. And because uh, that's part of because since it's a, a pole structure, you want to keep those logs dry. So um, one of the ideas, I'm just so excited to even talk about this idea, was like to keep the original wall, which was a, a stick frame wood wall, and to make another stick frame wood wall that's like three feet out. So then your eave shrinks to being just a two-foot eave. But your outer wall is kind of a sacrifice wall anyway. Not that big of a deal, but it's just a quick and simple wall. A little bit... I'm so excited about it just to talk about it. And yeah, then I, what we would do is we put a couple of beehives in there so that the opening for the beehive would go to the outside. So if you're in this enclosed area of three feet, then, you know, you wouldn't be exposed to any of the bees. It's just the hive that's there. And um, uh, I the thing is, is that bees keep their hive at 96 degrees. So in a way, it would kind of heat that space, which would in turn kind of heat the wafati a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. It would probably be like the equivalent of a whole another person. Because um, a, a person gives off 100 watts of heat every hour. 
free. Uh, well, it's constantly. They give up 100 watts of heat constantly. And so it's like, you know, uh, what, what is that? 2.4 kilowatts, Thanks. kilowatt hours of, of heat each day. Then Thanks for the matrix for making that public knowledge. <laughs> well, I it wasn't the matrix about electricity, but, but no, oh, this is heat. Okay. heat. Well, they captured the, the electricity and the heat. Okay. All right. So anyway, uh, the, the, the thing is, is I kind of thought, wouldn't that be cool to have like a couple of beehives in there that would be, um, cause the, cause the space would end up like if it's a really cold day outside, if it's like, um, like let's say it's, it's, uh, uh, zero Fahrenheit outside. Ooh, a really cold day. Then in this space where the bees are, it's probably like 35 or 40. And then it'll be like 72 in the house. But then, the, you know, the bees will keep that in between space a lot warmer and the, yeah. the bees will still be, cause they gotta, they gotta be kept relatively cool through the winter anyway. And so, um, for reasons. And, and so I don't know. I just, just love this idea. Um, uh, all right. That was, that was idea number two. Idea number three was kind of the same idea. But the outer wall, instead of being just another wall, it would be a solarium yeah. that would be tied in to the roof. So if the roof is like this, then the solarium would be like this. Whereas that other wall was like here, the second mm-hmm. wall. So here's, here's your wall now. And then you'd put in this, the second wall, like, I don't know about here, but the solarium would be like this. So this glass. Would, would come down off of the edge over here. Yeah. And then you could have like a really big space where you could put a table in there and. Oh yeah. No one else. Uh, the podcast people who will listen to this later. Uh, you can't see Paul's hands. That's right. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. So, um, here I'm thinking, oh good. I can show everybody what I'm talking <laughs> about. Yeah. So. Um, uh, this podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.